since today is a day when uh, about half the people here arrived to continue practicing for the next three weeks and uh, were met by uh, the other half of the people here who have been practicing for three weeks, there uh, may have been a sense of uh, joining a community that was in progress. And uh, there's a variety of different responses that people can have to joining a community that's in progress. On both sides, the people in the community and the people joining the community. So I thought actually that there's a larger framework in which I see that uh, movement of people that happened today. I think we're all continually joining the community that's in progress. That even three weeks ago, when the folks who still are here, who came at that point, came here, it wasn't as if everybody came here and began a community that some folks have joined today. The folks who came three weeks ago joined that community of seekers all over the world who are practicing and have been practicing in this tradition for 2,500 years in this particular way. And I like to think that at any time that I sit down anywhere, there are people sitting all over the world who are my community. So I'm just joining them. I think about that when I uh, do the chants of the refuges and precepts. I think to myself, not chanting this alone, nor am I only chanting this with the people who are in the room. The, this chant is joining the chant of countless people right now, all over this globe, who are saying these very words right now. And what's more, it's echoing in resonance with everyone who ever chanted them forever and ever. So it's joining the ongoing chorus of people dedicating themselves to waking up and doing it in every way, and particularly in this way. So I thought about what to say about as we join once again as this constellation of community that everyone is beginning again and that we're always beginning again. Every time we sit down, we're beginning again. We're beginning again the same quest for wisdom, for insight, Two things came to mind today. One of them I was hesitated about bringing up because I thought, oh, you you can't have gone to too many mindfulness retreats without somebody saying, we shall not cease from all our exploration. Wonderful last paragraph of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, we shall not cease from all our exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Really, each time we begin again, we come back to really know the place for the first time. We're trying to really, really know the place. One of my teachers, along my years of of study, said to me, 
you know, what we do is we get to know more and more. We get to know, and knowing goes from a small K to a capital K. And it doesn't do it all of a sudden. And I've had this vision of the small K just slowly getting to be a capital K, getting towards a capital K. And no matter how much we get to know, there isn't a place where we can say, okay, I'm all finished. And I don't have to know again or see clearly again. So we're always back at the beginning. The other thing I thought of saying as a way of uh, beginning this period of practice uh, came out of uh, a discussion that we had uh, amongst the teachers where we said, well, what will we do about the instructions? Here we've developed these formal instructions and elaborated them over these few weeks and here come all these people to start again. Shall we start in the beginning? And we didn't discuss actually at all. We just said that question and we said, yes, of course. Uh, that's the appropriate thing to do. It's always the same instructions. Actually, sometimes I think it's always the same instruction and I have something to say about that in a little bit. But um, I thought about the Gahan Wilson cartoon that probably many of you saw it made the rounds of meditation centers a few years ago. And it's a cartoon of uh, two people who look like they're, they're sitting anyway in a lotus position and they have robes on that make them look like monks. And one is leaning over towards the other and answering what must have been the question that the first person has asked. And so the caption is his answer. And the caption is, nothing happens next. This is it. And there's a tremendous amount of dharma in that. I think at the time people laughed about it because it seemed like it mocked meditation, that nothing happens next, it's boring, it's the same old thing. I think actually it has a very deep wisdom in it that nothing ever happens next. There isn't a next. Everything that happens, happens now. Now is the only time that we could see clearly. Now is the only time that we can wake up. I thought about uh, ideas about uh, arriving here and thinking, uh-oh, all those people are ahead of me. Ahead of me on a spiritual journey has the idea that the spiritual journey goes from here to there. And I can't remember what Pundit said, there isn't any there there. But actually, there isn't, we're not going from here to there. We're really maybe going from there to here, but maybe from here to here, or from pretty nearly here to back again here. But definitely, but definitely, this is one of those places where you want to say back to square one. Normally, normally that's a sign of some sort of mistake. Where we want to be is in square one. So much for... <laughs> I thought to myself, I need to make some welcoming remark. Then what I really want to talk about is what are we doing here? What's the point of it? Where are we going with it? Because it's never... We can never say that enough. I think that if someone said to me, you have to say the one single most important word that you really want people to know about, 
It changes from time to time, of course, but at this moment I would say intention. Knowing what the possibility is of this practice and then having the intention to have that come to fruition. And then everything would come from intention. So this dial, this this happened. This is a story that happened in my life last night. Just convenient for making this talk tonight. I was reading an article in a somewhat erudite uh, spiritual magazine, transpersonal magazine, and uh, scholars having uh, a critical debate about. Who has the real true Dharma? Will the you know the clearest light of the Dharma? Who really sees? Or uh, it's amazing to me to think that that would be the kind of a topic that might be open for discussion, since somewhat antithetical to a heart as wide as the world that understands all points of view. But anyway, uh, I read some of it aloud to my husband. I said, "This is so much intellectual talk." I said, "You know." It's essentially much more straightforward than that. This is a huge amount of words to talk about what we're doing and then whether or not we're doing it right or wrong. I said, I could say that in one sentence. And actually, so he challenged me to do it, uh, partly because I'd sort of thrown out the gauntlet and partly because I'm known for long-windedness. <laughs> but having said I could say it in one sentence, I thought it over. And I said a very careful sentence, which I wrote down so I could tell it to you. And I said, we are, he said, what would you say if somebody came to Spirit Rock and said, tell me in one sentence what's the essence of what you're doing here? Okay, this is a sentence. I said, we are discovering, not achieving, but discovering, because it's already there. That's not in the sentence, that's the side <laughs> That's the little annotation in the sense. We are discovering and then cultivating, avoiding saying honoring and cultivating because that's too new age, you see. That was one of the criticisms that I read. Okay, and cultivating our capacity for wise discernment and compassionate response. If I wanted to annotate that, I would say wise discernment and compassionate response about our own life and about life itself. But the inside sentence is fine. We are discovering and then cultivating our capacity for wise discernment and compassionate response. So he said, very good. Then he said, how would you explain how you're doing that? Also in one sentence. So that I had to think about for a while, and then I said, all day, in all activities, we are practicing techniques of directed and focused attention to to moment experience, supported by a lifestyle of silence and simplicity that allows for seeing clearly. There you go, one sentence. Then he said, what would you say if people said, what happens when you see clearly? Of course, I'd actually set him up to ask that because I can do that in one sentence. I kind of do it when I have the opportunity to end a talk in a dramatic way. I get to be able to say, this is my whole dharma. When we see clearly, we behave impeccably, out of love, 
on behalf of all beings. Now really, it's more than that. That's just, that's a, I think it's a really nice sentence. But it requires really to, to say about it, when we see clearly, we get to correct the views we have that are really distorted. Views we have about the permanence of things, or the solidity of things. The views we have of the separateness, or the separate, that there is a separate self. Views that we have about um, the nature of happiness, and the nature of freedom, and the nature of suffering. We get to see in every way, because it is in every moment of our experience, where there is freedom and where there is captivity, where we are stuck and where we are liberated, where there is suffering and where there is the end of suffering. It's really more complex than one sentence. We get to see on the way, the ways in which and the places in which in our lives we have not healed. We get to heal those places. It's an amazing, complex, awesome amount of clarification and purification and really transformation that happens from seeing clearly. It's a very optimistic view of Dharma, actually. It really suggests that the heart has the capacity to heal itself. Just need to pay attention to it. Give it the space and the support of a community that will hold it up, teachings that will guide it, the inspiration that will inspire it, when we take refuges in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, that's what that's about. It says it's possible to wake up. We could do it. It says it's possible to do it using this very practice. People have done it for a long time. It says it's possible to support each other just by our presence and the way we are with each other. I have another uh, image of what it is that we're doing. I've been thinking about seeing clearly. Um, I've been thinking about how that means in a literal way, how things become sharp. I'm uh, thinking about the binoculars that are uh, uh, at places like uh, Seal Point down in San Francisco where you can put a quarter or however much you put in those binoculars and you can't really see the seals out on that rock out there with your eye just as it is. But if you put a quarter in those binoculars and then you look in them and you adjust the dials, suddenly you can see, and you stand right in front of the binoculars, you can see the seals. Now the person who's next to you can't see the seals. They have to stand in front of the binoculars. And then they have to readjust that little wheel so that it adjusts for their vision. If I give my opera glasses to the person next to me, they have to adjust it to their vision. Sometimes since we're most of it, we're all of us getting older and most of us up to reading glasses, sometimes we find ourselves 
at uh, teacher meetings minus a pair of glasses and somebody will take theirs off and say, here, use mine. Someone else will try and say, no, they don't fit. And I think about the fact that the only place that we can see clearly is not only out of our own glasses, but out of the middle of our own life. And that what we are trying to do here is to move into the middle of our lives and look out from that place. That's the place from which we can see clearly. We sit down, literally sit down, in the middle of our lives and say, okay, here I am. What's happening? Much of the time, we are distracted by commentary. The commentary that goes on in our mind all the time that keeps us away from being in the middle of our lives. I think about, sometimes when you study... um, special sacred texts. The text that you might be studying is in the middle of the page, and then there'll be commentary of various commentators throughout the ages, perhaps, around that text, around it. So you see the text itself in the middle and the commentary on the side. And I think much of the time, we are living in the commentary around our life. And what we are trying to do is move into it and just be there. Here I am, awake in the middle of my life. So when we go back to talk about the instructions, there's a way of thinking about the instructions. All of them, really, as ways of moving us in to the middle of our life by one of two ways, really. One is stopping that commentary just by taking seriously the practice of directing and focus the attention into this moment, not being lured into all the commentary that is the habitual pattern of the mind. The other way is steadfastly really cultivating a kind of tranquility of heart, kept awake by a quality of alert attention that causes the commentary to fall away, be less compelling. The relaxed and tranquil heart allows us to sit in the middle of our lives. That's why as we practice here together, we'll practice primarily the instructions for vipassana, for mindfulness practice. And we will support them with metta practice. I actually think they are really faces of each other. They're really not separate practices. They have different forms. And in fact, some of the folks here are really practicing metta as their whole form. And mostly people are doing the vipassana practice. There isn't really a way that you can tell the difference between people. Everyone will sit and everyone will walk. We'll ask everybody to do what they're doing in a reasonably slow pace. There won't be a way so much to tell who's doing what. And in truth, we're all doing both at the same time. It isn't really possible to be paying attention in an open and accommodating way to all of your experience without having a benevolent heart. And it isn't really possible to make dedicated resolves for the well-being of oneself or of anyone else without paying attention to the quality of attention that's present for doing that, 
So really they are really inextricably part of each other, just a somewhat different form. Could talk a little bit about the instructions themselves and how we'll begin again tomorrow. I've noticed uh, that over the years has become uh, often a kind of a form to the way the instructions evolve day by day. Uh, Whoever is giving the instructions will often begin by saying, as we continue to elaborate the instructions of yesterday. And uh, it's a fine thing to say because we do elaborate. We start from just the simple attention in the breath in this moment and then begin through the days to open the attention to a wider and wider focus, bringing the attention to all of the body sensations, to the quality of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral that's part of really every moment of experience, to the quality of mind that's present moment to moment, and ultimately to the truth of what's happening, to the realm of the Dharma, to the realm of wisdom and insight and seeing. And in fact, all of the while, all of those realms are certainly all there. When we are attending quite carefully to the breath, it isn't as if we don't know that body, other kinds of body sensations, sometimes quite strong, aren't happening as well. There's always a mind state accompanying what's happening. So as we go along, we use that form to really anchor the attention and the, in the breath to provide a composure so that we can hold all of our experience in a way that makes it possible to discern clearly and to stay balanced. But sometimes as the instructions have gotten more and more elaborate, I've wondered about whether we couldn't say them in a more concise way. I've really uh, appreciated um, the way Ajahn Amaro gives instructions. Ajahn Amaro says something like, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the body and just stay there. It's a wonderful instruction. Then he gives a second sentence. He says, only be alert to those, anything that comes up that disturbs the natural peace and ease of the body and just notice it. I think I particularly like those instructions because of the phrase, the natural peace and ease. It's such a reassuring reminder that that actually is the natural state of the mind, state of natural peace and ease. And when you say, let the mind and body just do that, it makes it so easy. Well, it makes it sound so easy. I had another instruction that I thought of today. I was thinking about all the different ways to say the instructions, and certainly with great, great respect for all my friends and all the ways in which we can say instructions. I'm probably particularly thinking about how I am usually the most long-winded of all. I thought to myself, thinking of name that tune, I can do those instructions in three words. And these would be the three words. Please pay attention. 
And those are specially selected three words. Because pay attention is really what we're doing here. Pay attention all the time. Pay attention in whatever you're doing. Pay attention from the moment you wake up in the morning until the moment you fall asleep. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. But please, pay attention. And the please means relax. It's not a test. Don't worry. There isn't a finish line. Relax. Calm down. You need to calm down to pay attention. There's a lot going on. So I can say it in three words, but the truth is it's not easy. It's actually fairly difficult. We are habituated to the commentary. We make stories about practically everything. Mind races around with habitual commentary and it's strategized and it's plots and it figures. It's all part of being human. Everybody's mind does that. Has to do, a lot has to do with the genes we brought into this life and a lot has to do with the experiences that we've had in this life and how startled we've been by the experiences of our lives. Everybody's life has been different. Some people have had more startling things happen to them. And so their experience will be different than other people. Everybody's got different genes. Some people startle more easily than others from the beginning. So it's different for everybody. For everybody, it's actually quite difficult. In some ways, this is quite a simple practice because there isn't anything that you have to learn to do. There's anything that you have to do that's special. You don't have to learn anything special to recite. You can sit in a way that's comfortable for you. All you have to do is pay attention. It's a human capacity that we're all born with. But it's hard. Sometimes I think because this is such a naked practice, it's hard. There isn't very much place to hide. It's a very bare practice. We're only left with our own experience and our own mind and our own commentary. Verse 35 of the Dhammapada says, The active mind is difficult to tame, flighty and wandering wherever it wills. Taming it is essential, leading to well-being. And so we need to practice. You know, I I sometimes think about the fact that uh, the Buddha didn't teach meditation that much. Mostly when you read the early Buddha stories, he just went around and told people how it was. When he told them, they got it. I love to read those stories. Taught such and such a group of people and five of them were completely liberated. Then he went someplace else and taught another group of people, and 80 of them, completely liberated, just by hearing what he had to say. It's usually a wonderful line. It says, um, he said this and this and this, and in that group, five people, 20 people, 80 people, 
in the minds of five people, 20 people, 80 people, arose the the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma arose in their minds and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. I just love that thought, that it would be possible to have somebody tell you something in just such a way and you have such an open mind, or I have such an open mind, that someone could tell me some particular configuration of words in such a way that from then on I would never be confused by wrong view. It's so amazing to think about that. So then I think about this uh, sutta, Sermon on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the formula for the practice that we do here together. And I sometimes think that the Buddha preached this sermon because not everybody got it. That he told people, a lot of people got it. And I have this uh, fantasy that the Buddha, as a pedagogue, thought to himself, hmm, some people are really getting it. A lot of folks are not getting it. So maybe I ought to break it down into little pieces and then they could practice and then maybe they'll get it. Sometimes when I think about that, I think we should think about this as remedial or like remedial reading, remedial mindfulness. I think about uh, my uh, grandchild who's uh, going to school in the 8.30 group instead of in the 9.30 group and they never do say that the 8.30 group are the um, advanced readers and the 9.30 group are the slower readers. They uh, say these are the bluebirds and the redbirds. But everybody actually knows who's in the bluebirds and who's in the redbirds. So I thought to myself, maybe this is the redbird practice for the people who didn't get it in the bluebird way of direct transmission. But then after I thought that, I thought, Maybe I should say something to make sure that that doesn't make people feel, oh, somehow I'm one of those people who didn't get it by just hearing about it. I wanted to say something about having the most excited attitude about the possibility that this path works. It's worked for lots of people. could work for you. It is working for you. It can't not work for you. So I thought of two stories to tell you to make sure that you are fired up in your resolve. One of them is a story about my friend Sharon who went to uh, uh, study uh, metta with, uh, for the first time with Upandita in Burma. And uh, he said to her when she arrived, do you think you're going to be good at this practice or not? And uh, she worried about the answer because on the one hand she certainly hoped she would, but... On the other hand, you don't want to appear to be too inflated. So she said, well, I don't know, maybe I will and maybe I won't. And he said, that's not a good attitude. You should think to yourself, yes, I will. I'll be great at this practice because that actually helps you out a lot. And I thought about that story because uh, somebody told me a great story the other day who came to see me in an interview. And, you know, usually you've noticed if you've been here that when you see two teachers for an interview, the other teacher that, the teacher that you're seeing, writes some notes usually about the instructions that they're telling you to do so that the teacher you see two days later 
can say, how did that instruction work out? And usually I do, as the person is coming in the door, I look down to see what the other person said. And on this particular occasion, I did not get a chance to look at what that person had said. Here came this person in and sat down, and we talked a little bit. And then I said, um, what did Guy say about your practice the last time that you, when you saw him two days ago? And with a bit of a twinkle, this person said to me, oh, he said I was the best yogi here. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, that was an extraordinary... That, so I actually thought... So, of course, I looked on the back of the page, and it said, was given instructions to refine walking or whatever. <laughs> but I thought to myself, if he had, that would have been great. I also told that person, I think that's great. I think we should all, in every interview, tell every single person, you are the best yogi here, and everyone is watching you to see... Everybody else knows it. So everybody else is watching you to see how you're practicing. Can you imagine how this would perk up this place tomorrow? So tomorrow when you come in and we say, you are the best. But you are the best. You cannot possibly be doing it better than you are, except you might be spurred up a little bit with confidence. I hope that gives you confidence. You cannot possibly start from any place other than the middle of your life now, but you can do that. And you're the only person who can do that. It's your life. And you're here. And it's now. So the instructions are always the same. We'll begin with them again. Do them every day. Everybody is really starting from wherever they're starting. Really don't know anything about having come or who's been here. Settled down doesn't really last. Maybe that the people who have been here for a while are a little bit more in the routine, and they may be in a moment of settled now. But often it happens, and will likely happen to many of you who have come, is you'll find yourself coming into an interview and saying, as people often do, yesterday I really had it. Now it's all gone. And what I mostly say, with some compassion, I hope, and some help and some explanation, is the it that you had yesterday is not really the it that you want. That really what we want is wisdom, clear seeing, a compassionate response to ourselves. The it we think we want is ease in the moment, clear focus. Sometimes we have ease, sometimes we have clear focus, sometimes we don't. It comes and it goes. All things come and go. What we really want is that wisdom that can hold that and respond to it with compassion. So this is the remedy for the mind that doesn't see clearly, gets confused. There's a wonderful 
paragraph I'd like to read to you. It's the paragraph. It's the first paragraph, actually, of a book called uh, "Tranquility and Insight." I love it. It's really a most straightforward book about practice. It talks about all meditative traditions. All meditative traditions, whatever the differences in underlying belief system and in specific techniques, agree in one essential respect: the cause of the dissatisfaction, anxiety and suffering which seem to be inseparable from our lives lies in a basic misinterpretation of the true nature of existence, a misinterpretation which clouds our perception of the actual fact, in consequence of which we persist in futile attempts to pursue and secure things which are, by their very nature, ephemeral or unattainable. Meditative traditions also agree that to overcome the state of affairs, intellectual understanding, and religious faith are not enough. Something more has to be done, not only outwardly, but however beneficial outward acts of charity or devotion may be, but inwardly. Each person needs to work on herself or himself to correct that fundamentally distorted perception of reality. This working on oneself is our meditation. This style is the style of the Buddha that's been preserved for 2,500 years, laid out in the Pali Canon, handed down from generation to generation, in the oldest tradition in Buddhism, the teachings of the elders. The tradition for all of these years is to anchor one's practice in a faith and recognition of the fact that this practice works. How that happens is that people often, always, begin a retreat with refuges, which means recognizing the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. Many people keep refuge practice as part of their daily practice, often remember that connection as they come and go out of the hall. And then also in taking, in a formal way, the precepts that make this community a safe and a sacred community to practice in, one that sustains and supports our practice. Say we take refuge in the Buddha. I think it's a recognition. For me, it's a recognition of the fact that the possibility of an awakened mind exists for human beings and that the Buddha was a person and by his energy managed to wake up makes me inspired. Verse 124 of the Dhammapada There is no fear if the heart is unspoiled by the passions and the mind is free from ill will. Seeing beyond good and evil one is awake. I 
I say I take refuge in the Dharma? I think about the fact that I'm very glad that there's a 2,500 year unbroken, uncomplicated, clearly enunciated path for seeing clearly. We don't have to reinvent it. Could direct our mind, direct our attention in these certain ways and wake up. Verse 33 of the Dhammapada. Just as a fletcher straightens an arrow, so the wise direct their mind. When I say I take refuge in the Sangha, especially in retreat, I think very much about the fact that we live in such a intentional, safe, and therefore sacred community in which we share this determination and intention to wake up. We live in a way with each other that supports one another, that causes no disturbance. We choose wisely. Verse number 169. Live your life well according with the way. Avoid a life of distraction. A life well lived leads to contentment both now and in the future. We could as a community here, living together and practicing together, have a well-lived life leading to contentment, both now and in the future. When we say the precepts, as we will in a little while, I'll say them for you and you'll be able to reflect on them could reflect on how they seem to you and how they feel to you. The formal way of following the, re- the refuges is with the precepts. The precepts are ways of living together in a community. I think in the past, when I've taught the precepts, I've maybe been reluctant Um, In the beginning, I felt a little bit hesitant to talk about behaving in a safe and a harmless way. We are all well-mannered and good and kind people. Everybody here is. I know that to be true. It gets difficult to practice in community and having a structure for living in together makes it possible to do it in the way that the community really is a support. I think what's important for me is to think about all the things that we renounce to make our lives as simple as they can be here. What we really are renouncing internally is we are renouncing an aversive response We're renouncing the needy response of the heart. 
we are actually discovering that the heart can remain balanced and awake in the face of all kinds of challenges. That's really what the practice is about. Sometimes when people hear about this kind of practice who are outside of it, it seems more like an outward bound of the mind or of the body that people make it through. It's not about making it through. It's about discovering that the heart can really open and hold all kinds of circumstances in benevolent, kind, compassionate response. Another Dhammapada verse, the renunciate who delights in vigilance, who fears heedlessness, advances like a forest fire, consuming obstructions, great and small. So here are the precepts. They all require some vigilance, some renunciation. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. Often we talk about that in terms of protecting the um, small beings, the lizards or the bugs that come into the meditation hall or into the dormitories and we carry them out carefully. And that's, of course, an important thing to recognize. I really like to include in the largest way, harming living beings means really keeping the community safe, really giving each person a safe environment for their practice. It means things like coming to the sittings on time. It means things like staying till the end of the sitting. It means things really like walking and the walking periods and being continuous as a way of sustaining everybody else here with your practice. That's what makes the community safe. All living beings, may we make them safe. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not given. That means, really, leave everything except your stuff just where it is. Always. You can move yourself or your stuff. Leave everything else where it is. It means little things, like if you come in and the window is open, leave it open. If it's closed, leave it closed. Leave everything just the way it is so that the community stays reliable for everybody else. There might be times when it's not exactly what you want to have, but what we are really discovering is our capacity to be with life not exactly as we would have it. Because it's always not exactly what we would have. Always. We have probably the most wonderful, in terms of comfort, retreat facility in the whole world. This is an amazing place. It's perfect, just as it is. I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. Sometimes we explain that in a kind of oblique way, um, say things like, uh, so we will remain celibate. But 
that's unclear. In this particular retreat, somebody asked me, I was so pleased because somebody asked me straight out, does that mean no masturbation? I said, yes, it does. That's exactly what it means. And we giggled a little bit together because when you think about the fourth precept, which is not talking or not interacting with anybody else, it's kind of the only thing that's left in terms of sexual expression. But it's not because there's anything the matter with sexuality or because it's not pleasant or because it's not good for you or because it's not relaxing or because of anything about sexuality and sexual expression. The precept is because it's another opportunity to discover the way lust arises and the way the mind responds to lust and the dialogues that happen in the mind about lust and the tension that happens in the mind about lust. So as a training precept, as a way of discovering the truth of the mind and the body, there it is as a precept. What we do with the precept, how we feel about what we do with the precept, it's a huge amount of learning available in that precept. Fourth precept is I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. Incorrect speech in the context of this retreat means any kind of communication with anybody else who's a retreatant here. It means not talking to anybody. It means not sending notes to anybody, not on their zafu, not on the bulletin board. It even means not leaving a flower on their zafu, which seems like a sweet thing to do, but it's their space. And it's uh, it's a communication. Someone has left me a flower. Someone might be in love with me. I wonder who is. I'll just look around and see. It really means keeping everybody's space absolutely inviolate. If you are spurred on by great goodness of heart to bring cough syrup or echinacea or cough drops or anything else for anybody who you think might need them, first of all, there's lots of that stuff over in the manager's office, but if you are determined to leave it, leave it out on the desk out there and not without an identi- and not with an identifying note for the person next to me who's coughing or whatever. Leave it just out there. Be a very nice supply, uh, altar of supplies for people that other people will recognize is the bounty of your heart. But don't label it for anyone. It makes people self-conscious. So it intrudes on their space. Don't make eye contact with people. It's a great gift. Then everybody can be here absolutely doing their own practice in their own separate space sustained by the whole community. I want this to be the first retreat in history where no one sends anybody else a note. So I'd like to really encourage you to join me in doing that. Send a note to teachers, send a note to managers, send a note to cooks, send a note to anybody on the staff. Leave everybody else's space absolutely alone. So the last verse of the Dhammapada is saved for the last precept. The last precept is I undertake the precept 
to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So, of course, you don't use intoxicants of a substance variety while you're here. Don't cloud the mind with any kind of heedlessness. Try to be very simple in your life. Pare down the things that you do. Here's verse 183 of the Dhammapada. Avoid all evil. Cultivate that which is truly good. Purify the heart. This is the way of the awakened ones. I want to tell you what I think each of those means and how they relate. Avoid all evil means live in this renunciate way. Really do the precepts. Cultivate that which is truly good means practice really hard. Be your own support team. Tell yourself, I'm the best yogi here. Really means make right effort. The last sentence the Buddha spoke in his life is, strive on, work hard, steadfastly move into the next minute. Move on steadfastly, translated different ways. But it means really go for it, seriously. Believe it can happen. It can. Purify the heart means please, please pay attention. When you pay attention, the mind becomes quite concentrated, quite clear. All the hindrances present themselves and disappear. All defilements are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. It's one of the great teaching lines of Dharma practice. This is the way of the awakened ones. So I wish that you awaken in these three weeks. I wish that we all awaken again and again and again. And that we continually return to the beginning, see the place for the first time, return again, see it again, return again, That way, we'll keep coming back together, now and forever for the rest of our lives, starting always at the beginning, seeing it again for the first time, knowing it for the first time. The very end of that paragraph that begins, we shall not cease with all our exploring, And the end of all our explorations will be that we arrive at the place that we started and know it for the first time. goes on to say, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. So I'll say the precepts for you in English. I'd like you to reflect on them. And I'll say the refuges as well. (coughs) 
I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept to abstain from incorrect speech. I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. As a way of ending in a formal way, we'll chant in Pali. And some of you will know the Pali and many of you will not. So you just listen. And at the end, I'll ring the bell. I ring the bell. The people who have been practicing will slowly stand up and go out. And the people who just joined the retreat will stay. Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato Samma Samputasa Bhutang Sarananga Chami Dhammang Sarananga Chami Sankhang Sarananga Chami Dutiyampi Bhutang Sarananga Chami Dutiyampi Dhammang Sarananga Chami Dutiyampi Sankang Sarananga Chami Dutiyampi Budang Sarananga Chami Dutiyampi Dhammang Sarananga Chami Dutiyampi Sankang Sarananga Chami Panati Pata Vairabhmani Sikha Padam Samadhyami 
อดินาดานาเวรัมมณีสิกขาปะดัมสมาธิยามิขามิสุมิชาจาราเวรัมมณีสิกขาปะดัมสมาธิยามิบุสาวาดาเวรัมมณีสิกขาปะดัมสมา